Hypocrisy is a distinctly Christian ethical concern. Jesus was the one, while he maybe was not the one that invented the concept of hypocrisy, he was the one that, as you might say, popularized it. The reason we as a culture are so concerned with people being hypocrites is because of what Jesus had to say about hypocrisy. He could not stand people that acted one way when they were around people or said one thing or preached one thing and then did something else. Hypocrisy is a Christian ethical concern. However, Christians are accused of being hypocrites more than just about anybody else except for maybe Congress. So how does that work? Now, let's be, let's be real life for a second. Some of that is excuses, right? Why don't you go to church? Well, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. That may be true, but usually in that conversation, you want to find out, yeah, but why don't you go to church, though? Because we're not we're there to worship other people, right? We're here to worship Jesus. Some of it is petty. You know, somebody did something to somebody back someday, and they have not been able to get over it. They took it real personally. But we also all know that we as the church can fall into that hypocrisy trap. And that when people accuse the church of being full of hypocrites, they're not always wrong. And we don't lose anything by admitting that either. In fact, you can make people angry if you try, no, that's not true. And they're like, uh, yes, it is true. You don't have to necessarily lie down and take it, but there, you don't have to defend the church's honor when the Lord himself is not happy with hypocrisy in his church. In fact, we're going to see today that Paul is going to call out the hypocrisy of the Jews, the nation of Israel. Israel in the Bible was called to be, as it says in Exodus 19, after God had taken them out of Egypt and was about to initiate the covenant, he said, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Meaning out of all the nations of the world, I have picked you to represent me. Genesis 12, verse 3, God had told Abraham when he called him, In you, all the families, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. There was always an outward dimension to being part of the nation of Israel. And that's still true to this day, that being part of God's people has an outward dimension. Yes, we are saved, but we are saved for other folks. We often say we are blessed to be a what? Blessing, exactly. But the Jews as Paul is going to explain today, failed to live up to this standard. They chose instead to insulate themselves and isolate themselves. To redefine their religion to mean we're really excited about being Jews. We're really excited about having the law. Isn't it great that we circumcise our children? Isn't it wonderful, all the stories that we have? Now, they had no problem holding that status over other people's heads. Well, that's all part of it. We, told them we, are, we are ministering to the nations. We go out and we tell them how great we are and how rotten they are, and they can be like us if they try, but they'll never be exactly like us. But what Paul is going to call out here is that they were committing the same immoralities that they were judging the Gentiles for. When they would stand up and preach and they would go to the philosophical club and the Stoics would talk and the Epicureans would talk and here comes the disciple of Moses to speak. Guys like Philo, maybe. And they would rant and rave against the idolatry and the immorality of the Gentiles, but then they would do the same things. 
They thought that their status as God's chosen people exempted them from the need to do what the law said. And we've talked about this for the last few weeks. All this passage is doing, and in chapter 1 too, is Paul is moving to, remember, establish guilt. He's trying to bring it to the conclusion that we are all guilty before God. We already saw this in chapter 1. He aimed it at the Gentiles. And you can picture the Jews saying, Amen, get them, Paul. And then he turns to them in chapter 2, and he's still having that, that talk. He reminded them that God judges impartially and that it's the doers of the law will be justified. Well, he's already laid out some principles. Today, he gets specific. He's going to point out some very specific things. And he's going to say shocking things about the ineffectiveness of your social status as a means of salvation. Which to Jewish ears, and even to our ears as Christians, because we're going to apply it that way too, are shocking to hear. Because we are not Jews, most of us. But we are religious, and therefore we face the same temptations. You don't get to use context to get out of what it's trying to teach. Oh, this passage is aimed at at Israel, and I'm not part of Israel, therefore it doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes it does. Just as the Jews deified circumcision, they deified being a citizen of Israel, they deified having the law, we as Christians will do the same things. We deify having the Bible. We deify baptism. We deify church membership, that these are the most important things. Aren't they wonderful? And our religion, too, becomes not celebrating what Christ has done, learning his doctrines, going out to love the world. It becomes a holy club where we get together and say, we're Christians, isn't that great? And that's insufficient. And when we use those things as a license to sin, we are hypocrites, and the world takes notice of that. The world is not full of idiots. They see the church, they see us talking about morality, and then they go on and see us do something immoral, and they go, why would I listen to you? Kind of like when you've been conned by somebody once or twice, like, we're not doing this again. I'm not going to have business with you again. In the end today, we're going to be reminded, and this is such an important point, that salvation is not just about conversion, although that's very important. It's also, even at the end, Paul's going to bring it, it's not even about adherence to the commandments, although that's, as he said, even more important. It's about knowing God and loving him from a pure heart. Now, that's distilling what it means to be a Christian all the way down to its essence. And if that's out of place, this will be out of place. And if that's out of place, then so will this be. So let's look at how Paul works to establish guilt among arrogant Jews in his audience and apply this to ourselves, lest we fall into that same arrogance. We'll read the first couple verses here, verses 17 through 20 to begin. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We're going to pause before we get to verse 21. So we're going to go back and look at where we are so far. Paul has just demonstrated that conscience 
can be the same function in a Gentile's life as the law is for a Jew, which was radical for them to hear. He says, if a Gentile does the right things and you do the wrong things, isn't God going to prefer the Gentile? They say, well, they don't even have the law. Paul goes, yeah, but they've got a conscience. And if they keep their conscience, but you can't even keep the written word right in front of you, what makes you think that you're going to be better off than they are on Judgment Day? So now he's going to directly address these Jews. And listen, Paul had been a Pharisee. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, the son of a Pharisee. I come from a family of Pharisees, and I'm more Pharisee than all of you Pharisees. So every time you read in the Gospels of Jesus calling out Pharisees, you got to think of Paul. Paul got it. So all these, these verses here, this is no excuse to be like, yeah, Jews are kind of like that. Paul's not, not being an anti-Semite. He himself was a Jew, obviously. He's going to talk later on about how wonderful it, it still remains to be a Jew and to be of the nation of Israel. But Paul's going to be like, let's just be honest with ourselves here. He can hear them saying, don't you know that? And you can run through the list. I'm a Jew. I rely on the law. I boast in God. I instruct the foolish. He's directly addressing them. And he gives this list. It's a long list of these things that Jews do, things that Jews have. And here's something you need to know about this. Everything he lists in verses 17 through 20, those are all good things. Paul is not saying that a single thing in this list is wrong. He's saying, well, if this is true, and it's important to know, it should be true. All these things. And I'm not going to run through all of them, but you can boil it down to, to three points, I think, from these, this list. Number one, they had a holy heritage as God's people. They were Jews. They had been chosen by God, brought out of Egypt, through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, led into the promised land by Joshua himself. They had received the law. That was a wonderful thing to have David in your, in your heritage, to have the Psalms, to have all these things. That's, that was wonderful. Number two, there was a veneration of the word of God. Remember, we're talking about standards here. We're talking about what is your ethical standard to which you will be judged by. And they're like, the law, we have the law. Read Psalm 119 if you want to know what the attitude ought to be about the law, about God's word. It's way up there. There's a part that says God has venerated his word, either, depending on how you translate it, either above his name or alongside his name. Either way, you get the point. God says, my word is important. It matters. And having that... He's going to say later, that's an advantage over the Gentile. You don't got to worry about things. You know what's right. And number three, they had a role to play as teachers and instructors. This is not arrogance here. Not saying, well, I got to show these Gentiles what's what. This was the mandate God had given them, as I said at the beginning. You're my nation of priests. Your job is to be a blessing to all the nations. So he's saying, if you're sure that all this is true about you, if you know, I love what it says in verse 18, his will, the word his is not there. If you know the will, like you know what God wants, that's true. They did. And you know these things apply to us as Christians too. We have all three of those things. We have a holy heritage as God's people. This is why every year, even though we've heard these stories a million times, Christmas is just a wonderful time of year. Easter is a wonderful, we're remembering where we came from. This is why the names of the apostles are so 
precious to us. And we look throughout history at all the great works that God has done, the revivals he's brought about, the great men and women that stood against the persecution and the darkness. And we get to look back at men like John Wesley and George Whitfield and men like Athanasius, one of my other favorite guys, and say, man, I'm with these guys. I'm right in that long tradition. It's true. Number two, we also have a veneration of the word of God especially as evangelicals. That's kind of our thing, is that we take the word of God seriously. We interpret it literally. We believe what it says. It's not just allegory for life. It can give us a lot of good life lessons, but we believe it's true. We don't just believe that there's a good lesson in Jesus dying and rising from the dead. We believe he actually died and rose again. And that's, that's a point of pride in, in a good sense, I mean. That we're like, we're not going to bow the word of God before us. We're going to bow down to the word of God and say what the Lord said goes. And number three, we also have a role to play as teachers and instructors. Jesus said, you are salt and light. You are a preservative in the world, giving it flavor. You're showing people, no, when you live God's way, life gets some of that flavor back. You also preserve nations from going into wickedness. You shine the light. You show people what's right. We have that role to play. And I wanted to stop and acknowledge that because it's good. Psalm 16:6 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Beautiful inheritance. Your heritage as a Christian. We love to talk about this culturally, right? We want to know where our kids came from especially if you're from an immigrant family, right? You want to remember the home country where we came from. That's all great. We tell our we want you to know your heritage as an American. You need to know these names. You need to know this history. Know these dates. We talk about that. It's good. But it's more important for us to recognize and love and understand our heritage as Christians. Our status is as wonderful as it was for the Jews here. The people of God. We are teachers and exemplars to the world. We've been commissioned. Matthew 28, Jesus said, go out and make disciples. Baptize them, teach them, do all of that. But here's the problem. We can ruin that testimony. There's a weight of responsibility that comes with all that. Having those things is not good. We've made it. We're going to hang it up on the wall so everybody can see it, know who we are. Have a little little Christian badge. Put a fish on the back of my car so when I cut people off, they know exactly who did it. There's a weight of responsibility that comes with being one of God's children. And Paul has said, now you know all this is true. And they would have said, yes, of course. And so do we. So verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? This is a very reasonable question. If you believe all that, and there would have been, amen, hallelujah, yes, Lord. Well, if you believe all that, are you living up to it? Especially those who see themselves as teachers. And don't think of an office of teacher here. Think of the world needs to know what I have to say. If you have that attitude, that you're in possession of the truth like no one else has, and listen, you do, your conduct reflects on what you have to offer people. How you live your life is going to reflect what you teach. 
You don't want an out-of-shape personal trainer, do you? Please come teach me how to lose weight and get healthy. And here he comes with a box of Krispy Kreme under his, under his arm. And, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you work out today. It's like, oh, boy. I went to school for this. Like, you, you might have the knowledge, but you obviously don't know how to apply it, do you? Kind of like a broke financial consultant. It's like, yeah, the, sorry I was late. They took my house. So anyway, let's, let's look at your portfolio here. And it's like, you know what? It's all the same to you. I don't want to hear it from you. Don't you understand? I, I have all this knowledge. I went to school. My father is a millionaire. It's like, yeah, but look at you, though. You can apply that however you like. It's like when your boss comes in, and he obviously just read a new book about management or something, and he's today we're going to talk about synergy. And you're like, oh, brother, this again. Because next week we're going to be right back to where we were, and you're going to be ducking out early. And you know what? No, I'm not interested. And this is exactly what Paul is saying to the Jews, and we ought to apply to ourselves as religious people. Because the world sees through that, just like you saw through all those things that I just described. And he gives us three examples that remind us of what? That if it's wrong for them, it's wrong for you. We don't get a separate set of rules to follow. Jesus made that very clear, didn't he? You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. He goes, yeah, you know, I always thought that was kind of harsh. Isn't there graciousness with God? He goes, yes. You also shouldn't get angry at your brother without a cause or even insult him because if you do, you're going to hell. Jesus, you can't say things like that. You're supposed to be full of grace. He says, if it's wrong for them, it's wrong for you. So these three examples he gives are as good as any. So let's break these down. He says, you who teach against stealing, do you steal? Now here's something we don't talk about very much. You know, when was the last time you heard a message on stealing things? You know, and I'm the pastor, so like, you know, that's kind of on me, I guess. But, you know, today we're going to talk about stealing, because I think most folks get that. But it's good to remind, let's just take the time to remind ourselves of a very important central ethical mandate of the Bible. Exodus 20.15 says, thou shalt not steal. If it's not yours, you may not take it. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know you know that. I'm not saying you all are robbing banks here. You're not going in with a ski mask and a gun and trying to take things. And if you are, please stop. Does <laughs> the so Bible say I can't do that? It does, actually. But let's, let's, let's apply this out a little bit. What about embezzlement? Are you stealing money from your job? You know, nobody will know if I just slide this over here. I was given this much, and I'm supposed to return however much was left over, but maybe I'll just say that I spent the whole thing and keep the rest. That's stealing. That's stealing. What about time theft? When you say you're working and you're clocked in and you expect to be paid for that time, and what are you doing on Facebook the whole time? You've got to make sure you don't post anything too obnoxious and your boss will know you were on Facebook while you were supposed to be working. What about online piracy? That's less of a problem than it used to be now that the corporations have kind of cracked down. But that was the thing. Well, I can just get it for free. Like that's, that's stealing. Well, I don't think it's stealing. Well, the law says it is stealing. Well, I don't listen to the laws of man. I listen to the laws. Of, there's no biblical permission to download music illegally. You understand? What about your taxes? Seems with some folks, the richer they get, the better they get at finding ways to not pay their taxes. You know, if I sort of 
not lie, but structure things in a certain way, it'll look like I don't have as much money as I do, therefore I won't have to pay the money that I owe. Well, taxes are too high. You know what? I agree with you. But you know what Paul said in Romans 13? Pay taxes to whom taxes are due. If it's wrong for them, it's wrong for you. <laughs> My story about stealing, I was probably three or four years old, and I was at the mall, and they used to have this candy store. Remember where they had the plastic little boxes, and you'd get the scoop, and you'd make a little bag? So my, we're in there, my mom is talking to the lady and my little three, four-year-old hand reached in and took like a jelly bean or something and my mom said, Tyler! And she goes, that's stealing! And everything I knew from Sunday school about what stealing was applied to me and the lady who was probably just teasing and my mom and her probably laughed, she goes, yeah, the police are on their way. And my heart just drops. That whole ride home, I'm kind of sitting in the car like this, you know. But in a, you know, in a very real way, that is how, as it says in the Bible, their hearts smote them, right? When they realized what they had done. That's a silly example, but the same thing should be true about the little things that we excuse. Second, adultery. It's a little more, a little more real, a little more for us to apply. Another one of the Ten Commandments, 2014, Exodus 2014. Thou shalt not commit Adultery. It says, actually, thou shalt not even covet thy neighbor's wife. Don't even fantasize about adultery. And we love to rail about sexual immorality. I preached about homosexuality a few weeks ago and transgenderism, and they're pushing it on our kids. We've got to stop that. Yes. But let's take a look at you. The Bible says, one man, one woman in marriage for life, faithfully and consistently. Are you living up to that? Well, I have not committed adultery. I sure hope not. If you are, you need to stop. And you also need to stop feeling things out and saying, you know, we haven't done anything, but let's just see if there's any possibility. I'm just going to flirt and see if it goes anywhere. I'm just going to kind of word the email in such a way that it could be read this way, but i got plausible deniability just to see if anything's out there. I'm never going to do anything. Sure, you won't. Don't do that. Pornography, right? Well, the Bible doesn't say pornography is wrong. You know what the Bible says? If you look with lust upon a woman, it's the same thing as committing adultery with her in your heart. So I don't want to put paid to that. What about cohabitation? This is something that the world has just kind of, even the church has kind of given up on. Well, we're not married, but we're going to live together. Don't worry, we won't have sex. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a lie right there. We're just gonna we're gonna be together and we're gonna we're gonna try each other out for a while and see if we're ready to get married. That is so messed up. That shows that you're not really in love, is what it says, isn't it? I like you a lot, but I want to audition you to see if you're good enough for me. Oh, it's awkward and uncomfortable to talk about it, but millions of people are doing it right now. Folks that grew up in Sunday school, homeschooled, went to church, and now, well, I don't think it's wrong. But I would never commit adultery. All right. What about, here's something we've talked about a lot, and this is one of those grown-up conversations we've got to have. 1 Corinthians tells us you do not have the right to your own body in your marriage. Are you withholding yourself from your husband or from your wife? Well, you know what? We're not as young as we used to be, and it's just we've, we've got to move on. We've got to change. The Bible says not to do that. 
Because, you know, it is wrong for a man or a woman to go off and have an affair or to get caught up in pornography or whatever you want to, whatever deviation we're talking about. The Bible tells us that our main safeguard against those things is to make sure that you are both taking care of one another sexually in your marriage. Well, you know, I just wasn't in the mood and haven't been for a long time. The Bible says you do not have the right to your own body. And the husband says, yes, I have the right to your body. It also says the wife has the right to the body of her husband as well. This is an important one that we need to reclaim because I think this will help protect against a lot of things. And there's all kinds of other sexual deviance that we've got to watch out for. Don't learn how sexuality is to be done from the world because they're not doing it right. Whatever you see on TV, whatever you hear on the radio or people you talk to, I guess that's normal. It's not. You don't learn that from them. So adultery, he says. And then also, here, here's another odd one. Do you rob temples? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Everybody in here can confidently say, no, I have never robbed a temple. <laughs> Unless you have some kind of Indiana Jones background that I'm unaware of. But robbing temples. Now, this is, this is kind of unclear exactly what he's talking about here. Because temple robbery, there was a Greek word for that. That was part of war, right? You would raid the country. You'd get in their temples. You'd carry their gods away. We have archaeology uh, that we've discovered of carvings of Babylon where they were carrying away the, the lampstand from the temple and other things like that. Like that was this god lost in battle to me. It's like when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and put it in their temple for Dagon and then Dagon kept on falling over in front of the Ark of the Covenant and said, we got to get rid of this thing. Because it's, it's nothing but trouble. Now, we're like, okay, so were these Jews like sneaking into temples and stealing things? Probably the best description that I could understand here is that they were fencing stolen goods from the temple. That they kind of had a reputation. Because they were Jews and they did not worship those gods, they had no reservations about getting rid of it. So if you had been to the temple and you had swiped a golden statue or something, you could go and you could, you could sell it and you could get rid of it. Whatever it was, it was something like that. Deuteronomy 7, though, God had told the children of Israel, you are not to have it in your house. You are not to touch it. And if you come across an idol, you are to destroy it. So let's put it this way. We abhor it. We would never worship an idol. But, you know, if you, if you manage to get something out of that temple, bring it to me and we'll find a way to quietly sell it and get rid of it. And I'll melt the gold down and we'll use that. Here's our question. Where are you profiting from the sins of other people? Not where are you sinning. Where are you profiting off the back of other people sinning? Let me give you an example from when I was in college. There was a friend of mine. And uh, she was in a graphic design class, I believe it was, and like a marketing class thing. And uh, it was at Liberty University, which was a Christian school. So they tried to take the, uh, the gospel and work it into every class. And one of the questions that they had to answer was, what if you as an artist are asked or commissioned to do a piece of art that is not in line with what the gospel teaches. And the example they gave was, please write an essay about how you would respond if in your job as a Christian graphic designer, you were asked to design a logo for a strip club. And I was talking to this friend of mine and she was so offended that they would even ask that question. She goes, because I'm not doing it. 
They're acting like I'm the one that's going into the strip club. But I'm not. I'm just designing the logo. I'm just designing the sign. And I said, but you're, you are the one that is making it more attractive for people to come inside and sin. She goes, but I'm not the one doing it. It doesn't matter. That's a great example, I think, of what we're talking about. I don't do it, but I make money off of it. If people stop sinning, I lose money. So it's in my best interest to make sure they keep sinning. Is that going on anywhere in your life? I don't even know if I can give many more examples than that. But where are you secretly hoping that this doesn't stop? Where are you secretly need people to keep doing that? Have nothing to do with that sort of thing. So you know what? I, I know that I'm not the one doing it, but I'm not going to have any, anything to do with this at all. That's all hypocrisy, isn't it? If you're going to get online, you're going to talk about the gay agenda tear apart, tearing apart our country, and then you're going to click over and you're going to watch pornography. The Lord's like, you hypocrite. My wife and I, we've just been, we've grown apart, and I love to go around and flirt with other girls and see what my options are out there, but, you know, I just can't stand it when they're always putting trans stuff in the movies. It, <laughs> the Lord's like, you're a hypocrite. You're full of it. You think you're a teacher, you're going to show everybody what's right, and you're going to go home, you're going to do the exact opposite. Here's what Jesus said about the Pharisees, and you can apply this to your own life. Matthew 23, he said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Ever wonder where that phrase, practice what you preach, comes from Jesus. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Sometimes we do that as Christians. We rant and rave about the, what the world's got to do, and you look at our own lives and you go, well, I mean, I'm a Christian though, so since I understand the grace, like when it's you, it's all grace. When it's the world, it's all works. It's all judgment and hellfire and brimstone. But when it comes to you, well, you know, God is merciful and God forgives everything. And so why don't you have some of that same attitude for the world? Because they're sinners. Why don't you have some of that attitude for yourself? Well, I'm, I've been baptized. You get no credit for preaching righteousness if you do not live righteously. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul laying down the hammer, isn't he? Breaking the law. Having the law of Moses, it, it made you part of God's people. Romans did not have the law of Moses. The Vandals and the Goths and the other tribes, they didn't have the law of Moses. They weren't talking about Moses in China or India or South Africa or Australia or Alabama at that time. It was special to have that meant you were part of God's people. And it was your way of honoring God by having the law. But Paul says, if you break that law, you're ruining the purpose that God intended for that law. And therefore, you as the people of God are not living up to the purpose of the people of God. And he quotes here, when he says, as it is written, verse 24, this is an amalgamation of two Old Testament verses. And they're both in a similar context. One is from Isaiah 52, verse 5. And the other one is Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Both cases, God is talking to the children of Israel in exile. In, in Isaiah, he's 
looking forward to when they would be exiled. In Ezekiel, they already are. But he's saying, because of your sin, you were kicked out of the land, and now you're in Babylon. And the rest of the world looks at you and said, their God must not be worth anything. My name is being blasphemed because of you. Which, and then he moves on to say, therefore, I'm going to bring you back so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. So put this in context what Paul's talking about here. The sins that drove Israel to be exiled from the land that brought shame upon the name of the Lord, hypocrisy is that bad. In God's eyes, when you talk about Jesus and I love Jesus and isn't so wonderful and y'all ought to go to church and then five minutes later, you're, you're telling dirty jokes and cussing and cutting it up with the rest of them. They might be laughing with you, but in their hearts they're going, you're a hypocrite. Remind me never to take you seriously. Next time you come to me, you want to tell me something? I got this in my back pocket. I'm going to whip it out the second you want to try to tell me anything. Blaspheming the name of the Lord. And I'll say, it is blasphemous to say things like, church is full of hypocrites. That's God's bride. That's a blasphemous thing to say. But the, the guilt for that is not on them. It's on those in the church that have brought that out of that person. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, said this about the Jews. He said, Among themselves, their honesty is inflexible. Their compassion is quick to move. But to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. Now, that probably had a lot of prejudice wrapped up into it. But he's, he's laying out exactly what Paul is talking about. You think it's so great to be Jews, but then you go out and they say, yeah, those Jews, they, they talk a big game, but if you ever get a good score, like you ever go into the temple and you manage to get something, you go talk to them, they'll, they'll hook you up. I thought they worshiped that God. Yeah, whatever, he must not, be, must not be that great of a God. He's supposed to be the Lord of all the nations, and to them, it's, like, oh, it's just one of those other tribal deities that I don't need to concern myself with. The Jews were dishonoring God by breaking the law as they held themselves up high. This law is greater than anything any of your philosophers ever came up with. In fact, they're all going to hell. And then they go and break the law. He's trying to show your status was of no benefit because you had not lived up to it. This is why 1 Timothy 3, 7, the gentleman learned this at the last men's study, that an elder in the church says, must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It's interesting when you think about that. Because he's saying the world ought to know that the pastor at least is an honest guy. At least he believes it. At least he keeps this law. And we've seen this countless times over. The high profile sins of the church. When some famous pastor is found to be having an affair or stealing a lot of money or whatever it is. And I'm not talking about when the world changes its mind on moral issues and it wants to come after the church about that. We absolutely ought to close ranks on that one. Like, you know what? We don't, we don't, we're not hold, held to the same standard you are. But I'm talking about the real thing. It dishonors God. And people go on TV and they talk about, this is why Christianity is no good for anybody. This is why we've got to move on. Maybe we should go back to the old gods. This is why everybody should be atheists. But you know what? That's less important. That, that's cheap and easy to call out, isn't it? It's so easy to be like, ah, that famous guy, he ruined it for all of us. You know what is more significant to the people in your life is how you conduct yourself. Your little sins that cause everybody around you to roll their eyes. I remember one time I was in middle school 
So I like to think the Lord has a little extra grace for me at this point. But, you know, middle school boys are a little loud and, you know, tend to be trying to spread their wings, so to speak. And they all knew I was a Christian and went to church and everything. And I don't remember what I did or what I said. And maybe that's for the best. But I said or did something. And my friend Taylor, he goes, whoa, Tyler, I thought you were a Christian. And we were all laughing and cutting up. Ah, ha, ha. And as soon as he said that, I just, oh, Lord. <laughs> I wanted to get on my knees and repent right there in that cafeteria. And, but, you know, that's a silly example. But that's what happens in our lives. People are less concerned what happened over there, what's happening with you. Say, well, what do you think about this guy that just did this thing and now he's not the pastor of that church anymore? You go, well, I just follow Jesus. That's wrong. We all know that that's wrong. We, we as a church have a written system for how we handle things like that. And, and he wasn't living up to it. But I am. He said, well, I would never hold myself up as a standard. You're supposed to. Paul told the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. All Christians are hypocrites. I'm not. Really? No, I'm not. You can watch me. This is the real deal. You go, I don't know if I want that kind of pressure. Hey, guys, you already have that kind of pressure. If they know you're a Christian, they're already looking at you. The world stands in condemnation of people who claim the word and yet break the word. People want to holler about the inerrancy of scripture and this true sound doctrine and this false teacher's got to go. And you talk to them and their life's a wreck. They're addicts or their relationships are all in pieces and their kids don't want anything to do with them. And they go to church and everybody at the church kind of does like the Red Sea when they come in and moves away. But, oh, they know what sound doctrine ought to be. It's hypocrisy. It disgusts our Lord. Jesus couldn't stand that. Prostitutes and demon-possessed people would come to Jesus, and he'd get on his knees and put his arm on their shoulders. Hey, it's okay. God loves you. But one of these religious people came up to him, full of pride, full of arrogance. Now, Jesus, you and me are not so different. You're a godly man. I myself am a very godly man, and I'm a little older than you, so maybe I could teach you a few. Jesus had no patience for that. He grew up as a poor man in Nazareth. No hope of ever advancing socially. So when you're in that position, very often you get to see what's going on at the level above you. And Jesus is like, I'm not putting up with this. You see that same attitude in his brothers, by the way, in James and Jude. Like faith without works is dead. Paul's like, well, I don't know if I'd put it quite like that, but yes. Verse 25. If you disagree with that, let's keep reading. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, that is the law of Moses, don't forget, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, again, it's important in verse 25. He says it, it is circumcision indeed is of value. He's going to come back to this point. He's not saying, as I said at the beginning, that all of these social markers and these things of being a Jew are bad. He's saying that they're not enough if you're going to break the law. It was the marker of the covenant, the cutting away of the foreskin on the eighth day of every Jewish male. God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that if you do not do this, 
You are cut off from the people of Israel. It's actually a play, of, play on words there. It says, if there is no cutting off, you will be cut off. So it's a big deal. God is not somehow getting to the New Testament and saying, ah, you know, if you want. It matters. But it's not a replacement for obedience. Circumcision was an initiatory rite. It wasn't magical. Now that I've become circumcised, I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. In fact, there's a rabbinic midrash on the book of Exodus, which is kind of like a commentary. And the rabbi's tradition said, quote, No person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. Gehenna is the word for hell. There is no one who is circumcised who's going to hell. That is such a dangerous doctrine. Because you say, oh, yeah, I've already done what I needed to do to get in. Therefore, doesn't matter how I live from now on. He's using the same logic that he used before. In the previous chap- uh, verses that we studied, God would rather you be uncircumcised and obedient than circumcised and disobedient. And he says, isn't that more righteous? Isn't it more righteous to not be part of the people of God, yet keep your conscience to the best of your ability, than to be in the tribe, and yet you're a big old hypocrite? This is not saying, by the way, and it's important to note this, that, okay, so the point is that if you keep the law, you'll be saved. He's going to move on to say, and in fact already has said, nobody is able to keep the law perfectly. He's laying down a principle here. It's a thought experiment. Is what's more important, circumcision or obedience? 1 Corinthians 7.19 says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So the wrong thing to do would be to go out, as the church has done in the past, and prohibit circumcision, because that's going to send you to hell. Paul's like, the point is it doesn't matter if your heart's wrong. You can apply this as Christians. I think the most obvious parallel is baptism. Well, she was baptized, so yes, she's, she's a party animal, and yes, she steals from us, and yes, she's got all this crazy, but you know what? She, she was baptized, so she's good. No, she's not. Paul's making this point very clear here. Baptism is no more magical than circumcision is. It's an initiatory rite. Is it worthless? No, just like circumcision is not worthless. It's special and wonderful, and it should be that marker of the beginning of something new in your life. It's a public confession that I stand with Christ. But if you then proceed to not stand with Christ, what good was it? We might switch his words here and say, will not your baptism be counted as a lack of baptism then? Some sinner going to stand before Jesus, but Lord, I was baptized. Look it up. It's in the record. VBS, I was eight years old, 2005, you can look it up. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's nice that it happened in 2005, but let's take a look at 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, and on. What were you doing here? Well, Jesus, I was baptized. I took communion. Do you know where I went to church? I, I was Protestant, Lord. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't mess around with the Pope or any of that. The Lord's like, you know what? I'd rather you be a Catholic that keeps my word than be a Protestant that's going to be a big old hypocrite. Amen. Oh, you feel that right there? Do you feel that? That's exactly what Paul's doing right here. I'd rather you just skip all that. That's like in the Old Testament. He says, I wish there was somebody among you that was brave enough just to go up to the temple and put out the fire that was never supposed to be put out. So that y'all would get this. That it's more important for you to have your heart right than your flesh right. Your disobedience does not just stumble the Gentiles, stumble outsiders. It's a sign that you are not, in fact, part of God's people. 
And we're going to get to the good news of this in a few weeks. We're going to talk about the grace of God and all that. But if we are trusting in our religion to save us, meaning the religious duties that we perform, I tithe, I go to church, I serve on the deacon board. I've been at this, this church. Remember, uh, if you ever read The Crucible, I love this example. They're going around to find out who might or might not be a witch in this play. And they come to this one guy and he's, a, you know, he's kind of not liking the way the interrogation is going. He says, hey, I hung the door on that church. I built the roof of that church. And the priest he goes, oh, that is a very good sign. It's like, what? That doesn't mean anything. You could, get some, you could get some Hindu to hang the roof on the church. He might do a great job. It doesn't make him saved. It's so important. And as Christians, can I just say this with all the love in my heart? Very often we have people that we love dearly. Our children, our parents, good friends that maybe y'all started out together. You were baptized around the same time. You were discipled together. You have stayed with the Lord and they've gone over there. And so in order to avoid yourself pain and heartbreak, you embrace this doctrine. Well, once saved, always saved. Once they're baptized, they're good. That's it. It's not what the word teaches us. Are you ever going to lose your salvation like your car keys? No, but the Bible has a lot to say about people that have the initiation and then do nothing with it. Jesus always intended to bring about a moral revolution, not just a new religion. Go read the Gospels again. Jesus had an awful lot to say about life, didn't he? Ethical teaching. That's why even the world can get on board a lot of stuff Jesus said. They like to ignore the other half, but they like parts of it. Because Jesus is not just trying to get people to be Christians. That's not enough. Or I could maybe say, that's not what a Christian is, just to be there. Oh yes, I'm a Christ follower. Yeah, when I go out, when I go out to the club and I'm doing everything wrong and I'm getting drunk and I'm hitting on the girls, I got a cross necklace, so you know it's okay. James 2, 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And we'll draw out again. Paul and James are absolutely in agreement with one another. They are not fighting as everybody wants to come out. A Bible full of contradictions. No, it's not. Just different emphases in different books. 28 and 29 now. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Here is a controversial, and I would say very often misunderstood statement. It's, I think it's easy enough to grasp in context, but we'll get to this in a, what that controversy is in a moment. But he's saying to be a Jew, to be a part of God's covenant, is not just to be circumcised. You've got to be circumcised in your heart. And Paul's not inventing this language. Deuteronomy several times says, you've got to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. The Lord said, Behold, the days are coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For these nations are uncircumcised. And... The house of Israel, uncircumcised in heart. The Lord's like, you're no better than Egypt, Ammon, Moab, any of these other nations. But we're circumcised. He goes, but your heart is not circumcised. This is an Old Testament lesson, but they had missed it. 
The heart is more important than the flesh. The point here, and I, this is the point I wanted to say. This verse has been used by many people to say, therefore, Christians are the new Jews. No such thing as Israel anymore. No such thing as Jews anymore. That's not Paul's point here. They say, well, obviously, the only person who, is, who has been inwardly circumcised are Christians. Therefore, this verse is talking about Christians. Therefore, being a Jew means nothing. And everything in the Old Testament and New Testament talking about Israel is really, it's talking about the church for real. I think you can see in context that's not his point. He's talking to an arrogant, prideful Jew. He's saying, you can't just come to me and say, well, I'm circumcised. No, that's not real circumcision. That's not real inclusion in the people of God. And he, again, he's moving to establish guilt here to say that everybody is guilty. And he's going to get into chapter 1. He's going to make it very, very clear that God absolutely still has a plan for his people, the nation of Israel. We'll get to that on another day. I just wanted to make sure we caught that in context so that when I refer back to it later, we're, we're good to go. He says, those who live lives of hypocrisy are living in what a Jew might term it, an uncircumcised life. Yes, you've been through the ritual, but you haven't done anything with it since then. And the Bible warns people like that. He plays on that word Jew here. Because the word Jew comes from the word for Judah began around the time of the Babylonian exile and then into the, the times of the Greek occupation and so on. But to be a Jew was the word for praise. When Leah had Judah, when he was born in Genesis, she said, I will be praised because I've had a son. So they would use this term Jew to say, God is praised by us. The other nations will praise us. And he's saying, to be a true Jew, the real praise that you want comes from God, not from men. And that brings us to an important point, and we're going to close with this here. All this talk about obedience and the law is very important. We cannot, we cannot ignore it. But you can tend to get lost in the weeds and miss the deeper points. So Paul has gone one level deep, starting about status, which he said is a good thing to have status. But he says it's all about obedience. But at the end here, he takes us one level deeper, that it's a matter of the spirit, not the letter, that our praise comes from God. The goal of both the Old and the New Covenants is for us to move beyond membership. I'm one of the people. Beyond even adherence to the standard. To real love and devotion to God himself. That's where this is all going. It's all about knowing and loving that Holy Spirit that he says here. It's, it's by the Spirit, not by the letter. The letters to the Corinthians take that, that concept and drag it all out. The Lord said, I'm going to write my law on your heart by my Holy Spirit. And we're living in those days now. The first and greatest commandment is to love God, which drives us to love one another. Jesus said in John 14, 23, I love this verse. Just hear this now. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. What a wonderful description of salvation that is. You love Jesus and the Father loves you too. And they will come with the Holy Spirit and indwell you. And that's really having a relationship with God. To know God. To love God. To be devoted to God. And for some of us, that's kind of an odd way to think about it because we're used to, we like the idea of membership and commitment and loyalty, but the Bible wants to move us past those things to love for God himself, love for Jesus. 
If you want to revitalize your moral life, right? If you want to say, I've got to get some things under control here. You've got to revitalize your love for Jesus. You've got to revitalize your worship if you want to revitalize your obedience. Those two things go together. Well, I, you know, I understand that I've got to do the right thing and I've got to be part of the church and it's an important cultural institution, but some people just get real emotional about all this. Well, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every aspect of your being has got to be committed in love to the Lord. And you know, if you don't think you've got great love for the Lord... I'm not talking about obedience. I'm talking about just that beating heart for Jesus. That song that, at least for me, I used to sing as a kid. And that song, Every Step I Take, I Take in You. That's what it means to be a believer. Every step, every breath, every word is for Jesus. Why? The world looks at you and says, why? And say, because Jesus hung on a cross for me. And he's given me forgiveness. How can I give anything less back to him? If you're not there yet, let Jesus show you your sin. Oh, that's a, that's a scary prayer to pray because you know why? He'll answer it. You get alone and you got to take some time. Don't say, okay, I got five minutes before work. I guess I can slip this in here. No, no, no. You get alone with Jesus. You put that phone on prayer mode. I mean, airplane mode. You put it aside. <laughs> tell your family, tell your kids, guys, I'm going to take some time to pray. I really need to be left alone for this. And say, Lord, Show me my guilt that I may understand your forgiveness. And the Lord will start to bring things to your mind. Things that you, you've pushed way down. Yeah, oh man, I didn't even like, think about that. I was so wrong. I can't believe I did that. Let's just not worry about it. That's when the Lord says, look at this. Remember that? What about this? And you're like, well, I don't have a whole lot of awful things I've done. But the Lord starts to pull out your motivations. Oh, you condemn her for all the things she's done. But look, you've got the same thing inside of you. You can even get to the point where you start to shake and weep before the Lord. But you know what is awesome? The next step is then you say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry. And the Lord goes, yeah, it's okay. I love you so much. Was there any better feeling than when you were a kid and you knew you had done the wrong thing? You knew you were busted. You knew there was no getting out of it. And all you were wondering was, well, is he going to throw me out that window or is he going to throw me out that window? And you come and you say, Dad... I'm so sorry, look, I broke, I broke it again, or I did the thing that I wasn't supposed to do. And You ever have a moment where your dad or your mom just goes, it's okay. Or when you're scared to death that you messed up that thing at work and you have to go into the meeting and you bring it up and you just know they're going to drop the hammer on you. And you bring it up and you say, I, I, I didn't get it done, I'm so sorry. And they just go, okay, well, just get it next time. Oh, the relief, the sigh of relief. Imagine that on a cosmic scale. That's what it is to come to Jesus Christ. And you say, why do we got to do it that way? That sounds so morbid because Jesus said, whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And whoever is forgiven little, only loves a little. But the thing is, none of us have only been forgiven a little. We just haven't realized it yet. Remember when the woman came to Jesus when he was eating at Simon's house? She was a disreputable woman. Everybody knew her around town. The kind of woman you tell your son, you're coming with me. You tell your daughter, I better not ever see you hanging out with that girl. You talk about her. It's one of those people everybody's okay to gossip about because everybody agrees. It's clear. She comes in and she begins to weep at Jesus' feet. The Pharisee says to himself, if this, 
If this guy was really from God, he wouldn't let that woman touch him. Yeah, well, I guess that tells me all I need to know about Jesus of Nazareth then. He said, Simon, let me ask you a question. There was a debtor that forgave one man five million bucks and the other guy five bucks. Which one's going to love him more? Well, the one that was forgiven more. He goes, yeah. You see this woman? Her sins are many, and she knows it. And she has found the forgiveness that I can bring, and that's why she loves me so much. You've got to let Jesus bring you to that place, because it's a good place. This is why we've got to get through Romans 1, 2, 3, and you go, come on, can we talk about anything else other than sin for a while? Because if we don't do that, when you get to Romans 3, 21, and he starts talking about the grace of God, it won't mean anything to you. And you want to talk about obedience and doing the right thing. If you don't have that, that, that giggling joy in your heart, then you think, I'm not, I'm not even going to be punished for this. I've just been forgiven. There's grace. Then what, what motivation are you going to have to do the right thing? Well, I mean, God will forgive me. God forgives all kinds of things. But when you've already felt the horror of what it does and how it breaks God's heart and it put Jesus on the cross, you go, I'm never doing that again. We are God's people. We have a holy heritage. We know the truth of the word. We have a mandate to set an example for the rest of the world. But y'all, talking and being are not enough. You've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And if you are a hypocrite, you stroll in here and everybody thinks you're great. You get off to work and you know, those folks are never coming to church. And these folks are never going to work. Therefore, I'm, I'm good. I can live both my lives. And there's that one person, if you ever saw them walk in the door of the church, you'd go, oh, no. You are doing the opposite of your calling. And the Bible says it shows that your status that you claim is nothing. A conscience-obeying sinner is more righteous than a hypocritical Jew or Christian. The purpose of your salvation is not just so that you can be saved. At least I'm not a Muslim. At least I'm not Buddhist. At least I'm not an atheist. If that's all that Jesus came to die for, what a waste. Jesus wanted to work out a moral revolution. You don't believe me? Titus 2.14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus says, I'm going to take these people. I'm going to save them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit. And they're going to be so fired up to go out and live righteously. It's going to change the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you start saying, well, it's really not about what you do. It's like that might technically, theologically in the book be true. But what about your life? What about you? Let us renounce hypocrisy. Commit ourselves afresh to righteousness. It's better for you to be shown to be a sinner sometimes that has to apologize than a hypocrite that thinks everything's all good. Go set an example for the world. And as I said, the pathway to that state of mind, that state of heart, is to abase yourself before God, to see your shortcomings clearly in the light of His holiness. We all look good until you get in the bathroom and you got those fluorescent lights on you, right? These lights don't make me look good. As I, uh, no, no, they show you what you really look like. That's what the Word of God does. Whenever I read that, I just feel rotten about myself. Because well, yeah, you're rotten. But there's good news. Because then you get to taste afresh of the forgiveness of God. 
And that love overflows into good works and righteousness. Your heart will overflow with so much love that it will motivate your obedience of its own accord. Worship first, then obedience. 